I'd like for you to turn to the 84th Psalm, one of the most intriguing spots in the ancient city of Jerusalem is the Wailing Wall. It's the only remains of the uh, temple um, that was destroyed in AD 70, just a huge segment, a wall that's there. And it represents, a, to the modern Jew, a linking up spiritually and um, socially, culturally, with their past. And it is a, a sobering thing to watch these Jews come by the hundreds every day to the Wailing Wall. And they put their hands on it and um, touch it, much like somebody who is feeling, um, who is blind, they caress it with their hands. Some of them kiss it. They read from the Torah there often. You see large groups of them together and, and a rabbi reading from the Torah and they pray. But one of the most fascinating things they do is that they have little pieces of paper and they roll them up into little cylinders. They put names on them and prayers on them and they shove them into the cracks of the wailing wall. Uh, I put one there myself one time. Had your name on it. True story. As though pushing those little pieces of paper in the cracks there, the wailing wall, there'd be some kind of connection with, with what the Jew believed to be the God of this, uh, this city and this location. And so every Jew, before he dies, will make a trip to Jerusalem if he can. You know, if there's one thing he can do, one desire he has, is to go to Jerusalem and stand at the Wailing Wall and experience what you experience at that unusual place. It's a, it's a desire to pilgrimage to there, you know. And so the Jew will say at the end of every year, there their benediction, their, their greeting to one another would be next year in Jerusalem. And the longing of their heart is to go there and link up in some way to uh, spiritually and culturally with their past. Um, that's kind of what is happening in the 84th Psalm. It's called a pilgrim song. And it's about these journeys the Jew makes in the name of God to the holy city. And this psalm um, emerges from the exile. Now, now the exile was that 70-year period of time that existed um, after the Babylonians came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, carried Jews into captivity. And uh, if you study the Old Testament, what you'll find is that this 70-year segment of time dominates Old Testament thought. What preceded the exile, what happened in the exile, and what followed the exile is, is the majority of Old Testament prophecy. It's contained there. So that 70-year period was a crucial time in, the Jewish, in Jewish history. And in the exile, out of the exile, came this longing to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, we've studied my class 
um, how that the Persian king allowed them to return to Jerusalem and to Judah. And we've been studying for months all that transpired in the return, in the post-exilic period as these people returned from exile to rebuild their city, rebuild the temple. It is a remarkable period of time in Jewish history. And out of the exile has come this psalm, and it's a part of the journey, the pilgrim's desire in his heart. It's a part of what they sang as they made their way back to the city, longing to return to what used to be, to how it used to be. Now this psalm divides into three points. Conveniently, for a preacher, it has three sections. I want to give you the outline, then I want to come back to it. First, the description of the pilgrim's passion. It's already in the, uh, on the back of this, misspelled in some places, but I'll not take credit for that. <laughs> Andy's responsible for the bulletin. Uh, <laughs> the, the pilgrim's passion, verses 1 through 3 and verse 10. The pilgrim's uh, perspective, verses 6... Uh, that, that's not right. Verses 4 through 6, and the description of the pilgrim's power, verses 7 through 12. Got it? The description of the pilgrim's passion. Read with me verses 1 through 3. Here we go. How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather have a temporary position at the outside in the vestibule of the house of God than to have a permanent home in wickedness. That's what he's saying. The pilgrim's passion. There is a gut-wrenching desire, passion, gripping passion that exists in the psalmist. As a matter of fact, every person here is a person of passion. Some of those passions, some passion may be unidentified. It may be undesired, unwanted. It may be ridiculous. Have you, been, have you listened to these guys who have this these uh, fantasy wishes, you know. When I was uh, working out in Spokane, this guy was a flagpole sitter. And he, he sat on top of this flagpole <laughs> and for, for days. Actually, the World's Fair was going on in Spokane when I was out there one summer. And he sat on top of his flagpole the whole summer long. And he... So he got in the newspaper. They, they interviewed him. Oh, well, we went down to look at him. I mean, now that'll bless you. What a way to spend an evening looking at a guy sitting on a flagpole. He got a little box up there and he sat in it, slept in it. 
If I can see you're underwhelmed by the flagpole sitter. And somebody asked me, I interviewed him, he said, well, I, this, it's a fulfillment of a lifelong desire. Sit on top of a flagpole day and night. Sometimes our passions are mundane. Psychologists tell us that we are all, every single person is moving toward his dominant thought and a person's dominant thought is his passion, what he really wants down deep inside. And he identifies this passion of his life that has a twofold implication. First is he wants an intimate relationship with God. He has a passion to know and experience God. He sounds a whole lot like Paul when he said, Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might be conformed to the image of his dying. Oh, that I might enter into a relationship with God that is deep and meaningful. He had this deep, heart-wrenching passion to know God. And he was envious of the birds because the birds had their dwelling place in the temple of God. You know, the implication here is, is that if anybody really has a desire for God, he has a desire to be in God's house. It's always strange to me to hear a person say, oh, I love to commune with God outside the church. A person who wants God will f- wants his to be in his dwelling place, in his church, in the temple. Now, let me ask you tonight, how badly do you want God? Because a person can have as much of God as he wants. And a person who says, I desire to know God, and to, I want God, and I want an experience that's deep and meaningful, A person who wants God will possess him. And the measure of your desire is the prediction of your possession. You can have as much of God as you want. And the the fact is, if you don't have an intimate relationship with God, it's because you really don't want it. You have enough religion to make you uncomfortable when you're out of duty. And you have enough religion to make you do certain things, impel you to do certain acts that you feel obligated to do. And you have enough religion to keep you from gross acts of sin. But if you do not have an intimate relationship with God, it's because you don't really want one. The second implication is, is a passion for a life of servant ministry. That is, he had a passion to be in a position where he could be used of God. He wanted that for himself. And he said this, in essence, um, to, to take a position, a lowliest position, the most insignificant office, is an honor to me beyond all that the world has to offer. I'd rather do what God wants me to do than to have the highest position in the land if there's a conflict. When I was um, doing my little deal out in in, uh, the Northwest, I met this guy 
at a, an evangelism conference. He came up and, and introduced himself, a dynamic young guy. And a person who knew him told me about him. He, he said he, he came from Louisiana out to the Northwest because he felt God leading him to just leave his job and go to the Northwest to do mission work and churches out there. And, and he went into this bank and got a job in a bank. And one day they had a bank party, I guess it was around Christmas time, and everybody was drinking and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 the, and the boss came up to him, the president of the bank, I assume, or CEO or whatever, offered him a drink. He said, well, I, just, I don't drink. He said, you don't drink? You're a teetotaler? He said, no, yeah. He said, I guess I am. He said, I'm a Christian. I just don't drink. And he said, the president looked at him. He said, well, I can tell you something, young guy. You're not going to get very high. You're not going to go very far in this bank unless you, you know, uh, drink with the rest of us and do this kind of stuff. And he said, the guy looked at, back at him, and he said, I'd rather dig ditches and, and, and please God to be president of this bank. And, and the president, you know, was so, uh, you know, struck by that, so dumbfounded, the long and short of it was he promoted him. I'd rather dig ditches, he said, than please God to be president of this bank. Um, I'd rather be a doorkeeper, he said, in the house of God than have wealth, you know, and live in wealth. Now, the language of this text is, 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 is uh, profound. It, it intrigues me. It's the language of security. He talks about natural security. He said birds have their nest, and they have this natural security of of, of, that, that a bird would have. He builds a nest and he dwells in it. He said, my security is not natural security. My security comes when I'm kneeling at the altar of God. And there is language of homesickness here. You can just feel this gut-wrenching uh, cry of this person because there's nothing um, any more um, um, heartbreaking and traumatic than a person who has been separated from a God he knows and loves and to once have an intimate relationship with God and to be separated from him is a heartbreaking thing and you can just feel that in the text and the language of this text is a language of romance the feeling of this man concerning God is like two lovers who long to be together for after all at the heart of the Christian faith the heart of the Christian faith is a relationship, a love relationship between a believer and Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian, to have an, a relationship of love. Now being a Christian is a, is a discipline that has certain parameters, and being a Christian is believing in certain beliefs and have a belief system, but the bottom line is, first and foremost, being a Christian is a love affair between a person and Jesus Christ, and don't let anybody ever tell you anything any different. There's something that goes on, call it whatever you will, between a person who comes to know Jesus Christ, he falls in love with him. And there is this interchange, this dialogue of love. That's the believer's passion. There is the pilgrim's perspective. Now read with me verses 4 through 6. How blessed are those who dwell in thy house. They are ever praising thee. I went out to a visit this afternoon with uh, uh, Ray Allen and his family, and I was 
Mrs. Allen, a longtime uh, Christian and uh, uh, Bible teacher, whatever, and uh, ask her, I asked them, did she have any uh, favorite passage, verses of Scripture? He said, her favorite verse of Scripture was, uh, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I remember as a kid memorizing that, thinking, whoever wrote that must have not had much to do. Huh. <laughs> and and uh, my, my mother and daddy made sure that I was in church on Sunday, you know, and they had to drag me there. Um, now, you know, kids, now, let me, let me, let me, there is no place any better to be any time than in God's good house. And the greatest memories you'll ever have in your life are the memories that surround and move around what takes place in this dwelling of God. That is, this is the place. He said they're, they're there and they're ever praising Him. How blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. That is, he has a desire, he has a way to God. He has a he has it in his mind how he's going to get there. He has a highway to God. Passing, look at this, passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. Now, listen to me carefully. Watch this. Christianity is a progressive thing. And there, have to be, there has to be a certain things occur, certain conditions to be before there can be the next thing occurs and the next condition to be. Uh, Paul puts it like this. He said we go from faith to faith. Now some of us want the next thing before we have the first thing. Now before there can be perspective, there has to be a passion for God so that a person who wants a perspective on life that's, that gives life meaning, a, a perspective on life that, where he can live in happiness, before that can happen, there has to be this passion for God so that there is a passion for God that leads to a perspective on life that is unique, a way of seeing life that's different for those who have a passion, a heart for God. Now, here's the perspective. He said, I have, I have this perspective that passing through Baca, I make it, they make it springs. That is, this perspective that he had on life was developed at Baca. Now, where in the world is that? Sounds kind of like Boat Cheetah or uh, Monday, you know. Now, let me tell you where Baca is. Now, watch this. Baca is, a, is an area of land, a place, a place, literal place, a few miles southeast of Jerusalem. It is desert. And it is the most arid, desert, driest place that you and I can ever imagine. We've never seen anything like it before. Uh, as a world traveler, I've been there, of course. But it's a, it's a, it's a dry, desert place. Kind of like... Uh, you know, the land you guys, you 
travel, headed out to West Texas and Eastern New Mexico. Desert place. Now, it is a literal place, but what he's talking about is a spiritual condition, a place of dryness. Any of you there? I've had people come into my office time and time again to say to me, you know, I'm going through a period of my life, and they, they define it like this, a period of dryness. There are no answers to my prayers. There's no meaning from Scripture. There is no feeling of joy. There is no victory, no fruit, no fertility, no fruit, no production. I'm going through a period of dryness. You know what is, you know, the, you know where it is, don't you? Place of dryness. The place called Baca, if you've got an index, a, note, a footnote on your Bible, it's called the place of tears, place of sorrow, grief where people stay up at night and cry their eyes out. It's where, where people go when their heart is broken. It's, it's a place of sorrow and despair. Now what he's saying is this. He said, in the midst of the dryness of my life, in the desert existence of my life, and in this period I went through of despondency and depression, I gained a new perspective. It is a profound definition or illustration or statement of the faith which dares to dig blessings out of hardship. He is saying that in this period of dryness and sorrow, I learned to see things in life that I've never been able to see before. I learned to believe, I learned to see how important the house of God was. I longed after I lost my awareness of God. I, I began to see how desperately I needed Him. And in this period when God was silent, I came to re realize that to commune and to communicate with God was more important to me than anything else. What a perspective. And so He said, He sends the gentle rain um, I don't know how he deals with your dryness and the sorrow of your life. He may bring storm clouds and rain on your parade. But what happens in a desert, when it rains in the desert, shortly after that, things spring up for growth. Now there's some people here tonight from uh, Seminole, Texas. It's where Moses struck the rock. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it. It's just about a mile away. Desert. When I first started going out to West Texas, nothing but shinry bushes. I guess that's what they call it. I mean, it was desert, God-forsaken. We'd go to Hobbs, New Mexico. I mean, between Lubbock and Hobbs, nothing. And some old guy came in there and uh, put out an irrigation well. He got one of these circle sprinkle systems and started irrigating that part of the country. And it blossomed like an oasis. I mean, peanut crops, I mean, it's gorgeous. Where you see these great circle irrigation systems out there, this out in the middle of the desert, 
just fertile and green and prosperous and productive. And cotton, my goodness, what a place. For when it rains in the desert, growth springs up. My perspective is this, that in the midst of this baka of my life, I'm going to get ready for the greatest growth I will ever experience. That's my perspective. One last thought. There is a description of the pilgrim's power. Now watch this. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God. That is to say, listen to me, hear this. That is to say that God has reserved the best He has for you, for you yet to experience. We go from strength to strength. It gets better. Listen to it. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. If you're walking upright and you don't get what you think you need or what you want, it's because it's not good for you. For no good thing does He ever withhold from those who walk uprightly. So there may be something that you desire and you want so desperately and you think it's the best thing for you, it's not the best thing for you and he'll give you the best if you leave the choice and decision up to him. Look at the last word, O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in thee. Daniel Boone, you know, king of the wild frontier, coonskin cap, that Daniel... I read somewhere where Daniel Boone, he's, you know, he's going across the country, wandering around in the woods, doing what Daniel Boone did before he started making movies. <laughs> and, and, and he knew that, that you know, you uh, couldn't, you know, carry enough provision with you. So old Daniel, wise as he was, he, he'd find a cave or he'd play, find a hollow log or whatever and he'd stash some provision in it. And when he made his route through there, when his colleagues went through the country, had it marked on a map, they'd just go from, you ready for this? They'd just go from provision to provision. They lived from one provision to the next. Now, I'm not sure that God is going to give you today what you need for tomorrow. But I have every confidence that God will give you tomorrow what you need tomorrow. And sometimes when we think about what tomorrow is going to be like, it scares us. But when we get to tomorrow, we find grace for that day. And we go from strength to strength, from provision to provision. How much it contrasts with 
those of us who go from bad to worse, from defeat to devastation. For the power of the pilgrim is, is that God is faithful and when you get to tomorrow, He'll have provision waiting for you. My promise to you from God's Word is, is that whatever you need tomorrow, He already has stashed away waiting for you. And so out of this psalm has come that great hymn we often sing. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. That's the pilgrim's power. Going through this land, holding on to his hand, eating the bread he has stashed away. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray and thank you for what you've made available to us in Christ. Lord, we pray for a passion for God, a longing to know Him, and for a perspective on life that will deliver us from criticism and from complaining, from hopelessness and despair, and help us to, to have the attitude that will enable us to turn our deserts into flower gardens, fruit orchards and father most of all for the power that goes from strength to strength for I pray it in Jesus name for his sake I, I wonder if there is a need tonight for public decision of any on any any way if you'd like to come tonight to for any reason that you've been working with in your own heart and God's been dealing with you about We'll give you that opportunity. We'll, you'll need to come quickly. We'll sing a stanza or two. Would you stand and sing with us? <laughs>